0: Welcome to the Beer Makes History podcast, presented by Yield Tavern Tours. This 10-episode series explores Boston during the American Revolution and beer's role in all of it. I'm Brooke, one of your hosts. I have a PhD in American history, I founded Yield Tavern Tours, and I'm an author and beer lover. In each episode, we pair a beer with our history, and that's where my co-host comes in.
1: I'm Kristen. I'm a PhD student in history, a tour guide for Ye Tavern Tours, and I'll be talking about the beer pairings in each episode, which means I'll be drinking a lot for research. So join us as beer makes history.
0: We're back for episode eight. In our last episode, Boston's rebels threw a tea party in 1773. And now we're going to talk about how Parliament harshly deals with their flouting of British law. But I'm going to need a beer for that. Kristen, what are we drinking?
1: This episode, we are drinking the Dog and Pony Show from Notch Brewing. It's a 4.5% ABV New England Pale Ale. Let's get it open. Awesome.
0: Huzzah! Mmm. That is smooth.
1: I love it. Super bright and crisp. Those are great adjectives for that. Like most New England, you know, pale ales, I get a ton of juicy citrus Mm -hmm. off of this. I get, you know, definitely some lemon and lime, a lot of grapefruit. Actually, like, a lot of grapefruit rind. Do you get the grapefruit? Maybe a little. A little. Maybe I'm just a- <laughs> fascinated with grapefruits. So it should come as no surprise that this beer is, one, citrus forward, but also really easy to drink because Notch Brewing specializes in session beers. For those of us that like to drink, this means we can have a lot.
0: In a single session. <laughs>
1: totally. Yeah, lots of beers in one session. Because <laughs> session beers have to be below 4.5% ABV. And we've had a lot of,
0: you know, 6.5%. <laughs> 8%. What was our Maybe highest? Like Maybe 10 10? 10? Yeah. something. <laughs> so
1: this is this is refreshing in all kinds of ways. And Notch was the first US brewery to focus exclusively on session beer. Yeah, which is rad. Totally because they did this during the mass IPA high ABV craze of the late aughts. Also, both Brooke and I have visited the actual beer hall in Salem, Massachusetts. It's a gorgeous space right on the river. It's inspired by Czech and German beer halls, if you can imagine that in your mind. So there's communal seating, Mm -hmm. you go up to the bar to get served. They've got beer hall snacks and skee-ball. But their pride and joy is a Czech draft tower with side pull faucets. Now this unique dispense method is pretty rare outside of Central Europe. It is gaining some speed among beer lovers though because it really pours the perfect beer. How? How? Yeah. I mean, what does that even mean? So you know how in the perfect beer is the one in front of me. So what? <laughs> so how does it pour the perfect beer? True, the perfect beer for the cicerones of the world. So you know a normal tap, if you you just pull it like an on or off switch. Yeah. And when the beer comes out, it kind of comes out at one speed in one way, and, and how it settles is how it settles. Now. For this one, you can control the degree of foam that comes out, the foam to beer ratio, by changing the angle of the side faucet. Mm. So this takes a lot of skill. If you open it up just a little bit, you're going to get a lot more foam, crank it all the way, you get a lot more beer. So you can really pour each beer to the specificity that it's supposed to have with that head foam to liquid beer ratio. Oh, that's great. And they also have a series of beer festivals at the Salem Brewery that are totally worth a visit. Salem is super cute. It's also going to come up in our history portion today, so I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah, it's worth mentioning, just we take it for granted
0: that we know where Salem is, but we're talking about Salem, Massachusetts, about 20 miles north of Boston and home to Salem Witch Trials, drama of the, (laughs) to say the least, of the 17th century. So this is the same Salem we're talking about. Another rad thing is we've got another loyalist as a key player and a political awakening in the Massachusetts
1: countryside. Let's get into it.
0: Okay. So we had the Boston Tea Party, and then Parliament determines that the punishment for the Boston Tea Party must firmly and finally crush the town's rebellious spirit. No small task, because nothing had crushed their spirits to date. Now to do that, Parliament decides to pass a series of laws called the Coercive Acts. They're very literal in their namings, as we've talked about throughout this podcast series. So the Coercive Acts are intending to coerce Boston and Massachusetts. But stupidly, (laughs) Parliament passed them on a rolling basis, with a new law every month or so being passed, which meant that Boston's surprise and annoyance would crop up all summer.
1: Seriously, such a stupid plan. We know that they'll be angry and vocal.
0: It's ridiculous. But before we get to the laws, we need to talk about the person who will be enforcing them because they've got a new plan for how to enforce them, too. The guy that we're talking about is a really prominent figure, and we've mentioned him a lot in previous episodes. It's General Thomas Gage. He's this episode's key player. He's our second loyalist in a row, Kristen. (laughs) You're just going to have to deal with it.
1: Uh, I actually am excited to deal with this one because we have brought him up in almost every episode. I want to hear more, get to know this guy. He seems like he's all over. He is all over
0: partly because he's the most powerful man in North America. He is the commander-in-chief of British forces in North America. He had spent nearly three decades in the army. He was considered the perfect man to bring Boston to its knees. Lord Dartmouth, who had replaced Lord Hillsborough in 1772 as Secretary of State of American Affairs, recalled Hutchinson from his post as governor. Dartmouth explained that, quote, General Gage's continuance in the government will most probably not be of long duration, end quote. Dartmouth hinted that once Gage restored order to Massachusetts, the king would likely reinstate Hutchinson as governor.
1: So they obviously thought that Gage could do the job and do it quickly, in and out.
0: Exactly. And so in early 1774, Gage replaced Hutchinson as governor. Hutchinson sailed for London for what he thought would be a temporary stay. Hmm... Here comes my sympathy. He was so sad in England. Hutchinson was. He often wrote to his family members in North America, hoping the conflict would end soon. And you know I'm sympathetic to Hutchinson, and this really breaks my heart. We
1: do know this. I have to ask. (laughs) You got me to like him, too, remember? No more mean old Tom. I know. But I have to ask here, did he ever get to come home to Boston? No, and
0: that's like the saddest part, is he never had the chance, actually. Massachusetts... Banished him in 1779. By being banished from Massachusetts, then he also followed the path of his great great grandmother Anne being banished from Massachusetts.
1: Rough family history.
0: It's a tough lineage. Okay, so back to his replacement. Thomas Gage is the only key player on this podcast series that was born in England.
1: Surprising, actually.
0: Yeah, even the loyalists we've featured, including Thomas Hutchinson and Richard Clark, were colonial-born. Gage didn't arrive to the colonies until 1755 to fight in the French and Indian War. He was born to a titled family, but as the younger son, he didn't inherit any of his family's property. That would have gone to the firstborn son. The customary step for a young man like him would be to enter the military, which he did after his family purchased an officer's commission, skipping going to college. So you may have heard this before. Officers in the British Army weren't necessarily more skilled or more tactical. They were just richer and could (laughs) afford an officer's title. Gage was known as a moderate man. In his mid-20s, he witnessed two hugely bloody battles in Europe, which likely shaped his aversion to war. Interestingly, Gage also married a colonist who came from a prominent family.
1: Huh, the British commander-in-chief married a colonist born in America.
0: Yeah, it's surprising but this so- shows that he has a vested interest in things working out in the colonies. He's not a huge proponent of war, he's married to a colonist, but you may remember from episode 3 that Gage remarked how problematic Boston was after the Stamp Act riots, so he knew he had a tough job on his hands to enforce the Coercive Acts in 1774. He arrived in Boston with 2,000 troops with more to follow.
1: So the troops are not here to try to calm down Boston's riots as they were in 1768, which didn't go well anyway with the Boston (laughs) Massacre. Not at all. This time they're enforcing serious laws.
0: Yeah, and these laws are painful. The first Coercive Act that Parliament passed was the Boston Port Bill. It shut down Boston's harbor beginning in June 1774. The harbor would not reopen until Bostonians paid for the value of the tea destroyed, which was over a million dollars
1: in today's value. Whew. And we talked about Boston's economy in episode one. It was a maritime economy. So shutting the harbor would completely cripple Boston, putting many, many people out of work. Yeah, and it did just that almost
0: immediately after going into effect. But... Something Samuel Adams and Joseph Warren had set up a year and a half earlier was now proving fruitful with the passage of the port bill. You remember from the last episode, we said that things really quieted down in Boston for about three years between the massacre and the passage of the Tea Act. And meanwhile, Adams and Warren were fretting and wanting something to happen. And so they set up this committee of correspondence, which would communicate with the other colonies in North America so that when something did happen, they could transmit it
1: sort of like early social media yeah
0: and so boston would inform other colonies of news from massachusetts in exchange for other colonies doing the same this way boston's problems became maryland's problems and those of north carolina once the port bill was passed adams and warren and the boston committee of correspondence got to work they requested help from other towns and colonies they wrote to philadelphia for example that boston was without a quote means of subsistence as to keep us from perishing with cold and hunger. Donations began pouring in, although they had to arrive first in Salem because they could not be processed because of Boston's closed
1: harbor. I think that means I should have a sip of my dog and pony show. Yes, it's good idea. It's also the brotherly love from Philadelphia that you wanted previously, Brooke. That's yes. really nice of them to send our Bostonians some donations.
0: They trolled in the last episode <laughs> and here they're sending goods. How so nice of them. So the Committee of Correspondence often pitched other towns by saying, if this could happen to us, it could also happen to you. And sure enough, the next coercive act affected more towns in Massachusetts than just Boston. It was called the Massachusetts Government Act, and it was severe. It altered the charter of Massachusetts and shut down popular elections for all government posts. All members of the governor's council, that's the legislature, were now going to be appointed by the royal government instead of the House of Representatives. Judges could be replaced by the governor for any reason. The Massachusetts Government Act wiped out any government by the people, something Massachusetts residents had been proud of for nearly a century and a half. Some of these coercive acts really harken back to the core of who Boston was that we talked a lot about in episode one. So it's going against all of these things they hold dear. And the Massachusetts Government Act is also the most damaging of the course of acts because it made Boston's problems with the British Empire and Boston's actions from the Boston Tea Party the problem for the whole
1: Massachusetts countryside. Right. It totally seemed to wake them all up politically. Yeah.
0: And then, as I mentioned, more acts followed throughout the summer. The Administration of Justice Act was a temporary law to last three years. Listen to this it allowed any civil or military official on trial for a capital offense in Massachusetts to instead be tried in England. Seems fair. Colonists referred to this as the Murder Act Mm -hmm. uh, because they believed any official who went back to England for their trial would surely be acquitted. Imagine how chilling that would be for colonists in Boston to know that Redcoats wouldn't be held responsible for their actions in the colonies. Another act was the Quartering Act of 1774. It allowed British officers to seize uninhabited buildings to quarter soldiers, but still did not permit soldiers to stay in private homes. The final law was the Quebec Act, which permitted Catholics freedom of worship and extended Quebec's territory as far as the Ohio River to the south and Mississippi River on the west. Seriously, what does
1: that have anything to do with what we're talking about?
0: Right. Okay. So um, Massachusetts was filled with Congregationalists who happened to hate Catholics and whose past, as we know, involves stifling others' religious freedoms. We've already mentioned in this episode, Anne Hutchinson, she's a perfect example of having her religious freedom stifled. So those in Massachusetts who are predominantly Congregationalists aren't going to want to grant Catholics freedom of worship. Worse, Now, even Southern colonists objected to the Quebec Act because it stopped them from being able to speculate the land north of the Ohio River. With this final coercive act, Parliament had done a spectacular job, bravo Parliament, of punishing Boston, Massachusetts, and the other colonies, even those in the South, for the actions of the 150 men who had participated in the Boston Tea Party. Gage wrote, quote, Nobody here or at home could have conceived that the axe made for the Massachusetts Bay could have created such a ferment throughout the continent and united the whole in one common cause. Gage, He seems to, on the one hand, have a terrible sense of what's going on in the colonies, and then on the other hand, a really strong sense. He gets it too late that this actually stirs everybody up. Virginia was sufficiently alarmed. Virginia, by the way. (laughs) Very far from Massachusetts, they're sufficiently alarmed by the Coercive Acts that they propose a meeting of all the colonies to discuss this increasingly tense relationship with Great Britain. This meeting was called the First Continental Congress. Such intercolonial cooperation hadn't happened since the Stamp Act Congress of 1765.
1: So instead of just punishing Boston and Massachusetts and potentially making an example of them to other colonies, these laws banded the colonies together. They had previously thought of themselves and acted as separate political entities no longer.
0: Right. Getting all these peeps on Boston's rebellious side was a devastating development for Gage. So he needs to get moving on shutting down this rebellion. That's why he was brought into Massachusetts anyway. His approach, though, is actually pretty passive. There he is being moderate. Yep. It's a really defensive position. So he believes that if he could get his hands on colonists' ammunition, he would stop Massachusetts from being able to violently rebel. That makes sense. For generations, Americans received their gunpowder from Great Britain, but in the fall of 1774, the British cut off their gunpowder exports to Massachusetts.
1: Probably a smart move. Yes, smart strategy.
0: (laughs) Without fresh supplies arriving, colonists needed to safeguard their limited supply of gunpowder, which was often stored in a centrally located magazine for nearby towns. Gage was going to take the colonists' gunpowder back. That's his tactic to shut down Boston's rebellious spirit. His first target is Cambridge. We'll talk about how it all goes after this fast break. If you're like us and you love history and beer, join Yule Tavern Tours when you're in Boston. We see many of the historic sites mentioned in this podcast and we drink beer at historic taverns along the way. Whether you're native to Boston or visiting for the first time, you'll learn something new and have so much fun doing it. On September 1st, 1774, under Gage's orders, about 300 soldiers marched to a powder house in Cambridge, stole some gunpowder, and brought it back to Castle Island. (laughs) La-dee-da. It was a quiet and nonviolent seizure and fulfilled Gage's goal to take colonial powder. No shots had been fired, and no one had been
1: killed. Good for Gage. That's pretty moderate and sounds like a success.
0: It does sound like a success, doesn't it? Except that when word of the powder raid spread to the countryside, so did a rumor that the local militia had tried to stop the Redcoats. And when they did that, the Redcoats shot and killed six colonists. This is a rumor, but it's spreading wildly. So nearly 4,000 men grabbed their guns, and gathered on Cambridge Common the following day, September 2nd, ready to take on the British soldiers.
1: 4,000 men? That rumor mill really (laughs) escalated things.
0: Yes, and when the crowd learned that nobody had actually been killed... They took advantage of now having 4,000 angry men in one place and demanded that newly appointed members of the governor's council resign. They were newly appointed because of that loathsome government act recently passed. Meanwhile, men are still coming. Towns from 20 to 30 miles away continued to mobilize that morning with estimates high as 20,000 men marching toward Cambridge. This confrontation became known as the powder alarm, And it, oddly enough, would be Gage's most successful powder
1: raid. Yikes. It was successful because he got the powder, but now all the countryside is on alert. So the coercive acts woke up the countryside politically, and the powder raid woke them up physically. Hey, that's a good way of putting it. In the midst of
0: all this, Joseph Warren was busy leading meetings to counter the coercive acts. The Government Act had banned any town meetings in Massachusetts, but rebels cleverly got around that by holding county
1: meetings. Ah, They're so creative. I
0: know, I love this. So the meetings of Suffolk County, where Boston was located, were led by Warren. At one of these meetings, Warren presented the Suffolk Resolves, a 19-point plan to oppose the Coercive Acts, including a plan to boycott British imports. Next... They were going to establish a temporary local government that had no connection to Gage. Government Act be damned. Finally, Massachusetts would raise their militia and start preparing militarily for a potential confrontation the Suffolk Resolves were the boldest and most radical of all colonial actions to
1: date. Which made sense since they were in response to the most radical actions by Parliament to date. Definitely.
0: So the Boston Tea Party is rebellious, that's throwing tea overboard, but this is setting up a new government. A day after the Resolves' approval in Massachusetts, Paul Revere, set off to Philadelphia with the resolves where the First Continental Congress was meeting.
1: This is definitely too early for his famous midnight ride.
0: Yeah, it's several months early for that ride, but Revere was a frequent messenger and we'll be talking about his famous midnight ride in our next episode. Back to the First Continental Congress. It convened in Philadelphia on September 5th, 1774, a few days after the Powder Raid. Philadelphia was a natural meeting space because it was fairly central to most colonies throughout North America and was the largest of all towns in America. Shortly after the Congress opened, Revere arrived with the Suffolk Resolves and gave them to Samuel Adams, who arranged to have them read aloud. On September 17th, the Resolves were read paragraph by paragraph, with each one unanimously approved by the delegates. It was pretty monumental
1: that the delegates agreed on an issue here. Yeah.
0: And then on September 24th, Revere was sent express back to Boston to let them know that the Suffolk Resolves had been unanimously approved by the Continental Congress. Huzzah! Meanwhile, back in Boston, Gage is still at it with another dog and pony show. Drink! (laughs) (laughs) beer is good. To avoid the problems Gage encountered with his powder raid in Cambridge, Gage was determined to keep his next raid, which targeted Salem, a secret. He's
1: not going to go after Notch Brewery, is he?
0: (laughs) Oh, silly Kristen. (laughs) No, he is going after their munitions. Same plan as Cambridge, target their colonial gunpowder. They probably would have gotten just as upset if he were targeting their beer. Seriously, beer makes history. Salem's townspeople learned of his plan, though, it wasn't kept a secret, and they moved the munitions before the troops arrived.
1: Poor Gage, the townspeople are easily outsmarting him here left and right. At
0: every turn, it's true. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Leslie led 250 redcoats to Salem on February 26, 1775, not knowing his mission was doomed gage ordered leslie to seize salem's cannons but he and his men could not get across the river to access them because the townspeople had pulled up the drawbridge the cannons weren't there anyway they'd been hidden this is a cluster seriously the redcoats stood by the river as people from salem gathered to taunt and insult the soldiers how embarrassing and so leslie is panicking a bit and he meets with local leaders to discuss how to retreat with a shred of dignity Just a shred. (laughs) Mercifully for Leslie, they agreed, I love this, total dog and pony show. They agreed to put down the drawbridge, allow Leslie and his troops to pass over the river, have a pretend look around, and then turn around and go straight back to Boston. This is bad for Gage. He hadn't been able to get the cannons or munitions, and worse, the Salem powder raid taught even more colonists in Massachusetts that they could get the best of the British army. For the past 10 years and previous episodes, the rebels had grown increasingly bold in the face of British policies, people, and military tactics that they didn't support. Not to mention, the rebels had now set up a rival government that was called the Provincial Congress. So we now have two governments and both are busy. The Provincial Congress began meeting in Concord, Massachusetts in March 1775. This is where they began planning their military operations. John Hancock and Samuel Adams traveled to the countryside to be closer to the meetings and then stayed in Lexington about five miles away. When the Congress adjourned in April, Hancock and Adams decided not to return to Boston. Rumors said that Gage planned to arrest both of them, so they waited in Lexington until they had to leave for Philadelphia for the Second Continental Congress. Smart plan. Yeah, good strategies. And then there's Gage's government, the only one sanctioned by Great Britain. He's busy, too. His plan, Kristen, I swear to you, it's another powder raid.
1: This makes me want to, like, <laughs> face palm.
0: <laughs> yeah, or, like, chug your beer. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, if it's even possible, this powder raid is going to go worse than his first two powder raids. And Adams and Hancock are now potentially
1: in danger. There's a lot happening in our next episode. So please join us. And at the end of this episode, I'll let you know what beer we'll be featuring next. Stay tuned. If you're wanting
0: to learn more about Revolutionary Boston, we have a few easy ways in addition to listening to this podcast. You can read more in my book called Boston in the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. You can also join Yule Tavern Tours when you're in Boston. Yeah, do it! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, join us for History and Craft Beer. We also have short videos called History in a Minute, highlighting sites and people from Boston's past. They're only a minute long. We'll have links in the show notes.
1: Next episode will feature two beers from Battle Road Brewery. The 1775 Tavern Ale and the Minute Man Gold. You've got a lot of hints there about what (laughs) we're talking about next. Battle Road connects Boston to Lexington and Concord. Add in some Minutemen in 1775. I think a war is brewing. Brewing, huh? Beer makes history.